Our reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I actually want to back up and start with verse 36 of chapter 10. Because what we have in chapter 11 is a description of faith in those first couple verses, or verse 1 in particular. And then what follows throughout the entirety of chapter 11 is a series of examples that demonstrate the description in verse 1. And all of that is given at this point in the letter because the, the argument of the author is this. You will need to press on, to endure, or to persevere in Christ, believing all the way to the end. So verse 36 of chapter 10. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien or a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people 
even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. But God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Well, let's turn our hearts and seek our God in prayer. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we come to lay our praises before you this morning. At the beginning of another week, we labor to bend our, our will, our, to turn our deepest desires, to focus our thoughts on you, triune God, eternal Father, Son, and Spirit. You are so far above our greatest descriptions that no passage in Scripture is, in, is an exaggeration of your perfection and beauty. It is an understatement, but it is the best that we can understand. We feel that when we read descriptions of you and the way you have acted on the behalf even of your enemies, God, we feel like little children being read a bedtime story from one of those board books. And the words are so few and simple, and yet they're true. Everything we need to know you, everything we need to live by faith, everything we need to happily dedicate our lives to the obedience that you deserve, everything is found in this book. But God, we know that you are incomprehensible and infinite, and there is more to you than any angel or theologian could ever know or describe. You only know your perfections perfectly. And we thank you for stooping down to speak in a way that we can receive it. 
So God, we ask that you would open our eyes again, that you would soften our hearts, warm them up, help us to plow them and make room for whatever you have to say to us today. God, free our will, our volition from the chains of sinfulness and self and pride, from unbelief and selfishness which so easily wrap themselves around our feet and we think we're free and we're not. But in Christ, God, you have provided all that we need so we come to you to praise you and to see your worth. And to worship you, not just in the way that we respond in singing or obedience, but in the way we live when we get in the car and drive home. We're grateful that you are the I am and not merely a God who acted in the past. We're grateful for the things that we read about that you did and that you will do. And that you give every believer the ability to have their thoughts and desires and choices altered by those facts. But God, it is what you are presently doing. It is the I am that is so desperately needed by us right now. We need to know that you have not changed. God, our hearts are full of the whispers of an enemy and our own doubting souls. God, shame the liar. Act, roll up your sleeve, stretch out your arm, work in our world, in our nation, in our towns, in our homes, our marriages, in this little church. Conquer, rule, save, and delight your people. God, we pray that you would do this here and everywhere. And we think especially of believers whose hearts are particularly burdened with spiritual needs as they care for others and pray and think about others. Broken-hearted believers that come to you day after day, will you heal the wound? You gave them a soft heart. You'll have to give them the cure. Will you hear, will you hear their prayers? Will you let them know you hear their prayer? And Father, for those that are physically isolated so often by bad health, God, we ask that you would be that one unchangeable environment for their lives and they would delight in you above everything. Show the world how real you are through your people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been considering the topic of following Christ as a disciple. And you remember that a disciple is different than just a pupil. You could be a good pupil and do all that a pupil needs to do in a classroom. So there you are seated at a desk and the teacher's teaching and you're paying attention and you're writing it down and you're, you know, you, you review and you kind of take it all in. But discipleship is more like an apprenticeship than that. It is when God, through the work of His Spirit, when Christ becomes our discipler. And, of course, He uses many tools in our life, other believers, His Word. But it is Christ Himself that is teaching us. It is Christ who is fashioning us. It's Christ that becomes our pattern. Discipleship then includes a path, and we've been talking about that, and that's what we're going to be looking at probably for the rest of the summer. God must do something wonderful in us and for us to bring us from death to life, from a kingdom of darkness where we're under the tyranny of self-deceit, living for what we think is worth living for, but it's not. And he brings us, when we cry out to him, into a kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son, a kingdom of love, where we are alive and responsive to God. And where all these religious things suddenly take on, you know, an effectiveness. And it's like the Bible comes alive in front of your eyes and you live 
with him and by him and for him. He does things for you. He himself is sufficient to be your teacher. You could be a really bad pupil, a really incompetent apprentice or disciple. But if you had God himself as your teacher, surely you could, un- you could agree that even you could become a follower of Christ. Not just in word, but moment by moment, hour by hour, the rest of your life. It's not how good a Christian you are that's really the question. It's how good of a teacher is he? So we have a great teacher. We have what he does in us, but now we have this path. When we think of following Jesus Christ and we think of the path, I I, I think we could consider two great elements. To be disciples of Christ, you must imitate his pattern. And so... There's that great command, follow me. And that still goes out today to all of us. And it's not optional. If we refuse that command, if we say, well, I'm, I'm not really interested in giving up my life for a God that I can't see and touch, then you will have to answer that very God one day. And as a Christian, following Christ is much more than just conversion. I believed, I repented, I I received full forgiveness. It's the entirety of our lives. Follow me means you're going to have to observe how he actually lived. And the scripture has everything you need for that. And you're going to have to adjust yourself to fit that model. But following Christ, this path of the Christian disciple, also includes a voice. And we think of John chapter 10 when he said, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is, when I read the Bible, it's more than just an old book. It's the voice of my king. And I actually respond. I get up and follow. I change. And I know we do it imperfectly. But it's real. And it's different than just showing up at church. So the path of Christ. There is the example of Christ. But in some areas, we don't see, well, I don't see how Christ, well, how would Christ have me live as a husband or as a dad or as a wife? Because he wasn't a husband, dad, or wife. And so I'm not sure how following Christ looks in that situation. And in that situation, you have the voice of the shepherd. In other words, the whole of the Bible, where he gives others words for us. And we read what Paul says about this, and we read what Peter says about this, and John or James, and we hear the voice of the king in those passages, and we follow his voice. Example and voice. Last week, we looked at this fundamental aspect of Christ and the scriptures, How do you follow Jesus Christ? Well, we have to do that using a book that he's given us. Okay, well, is it just reading the book and paying attention to the book? No, it's more than that. It is also looking at how he read the book. How did Jesus of Nazareth approach the word of God? How did he respond to the word of God? You will not be able to be a follower of Christ in any practical, real way if you don't take that as... The only option for you. You must, day by day, more and more and more, be conformed to Christ's pattern in how you approach and respond to the Word of God. That brings us to another matter this week, the issue of faith. Now, when we talk about following Christ as believers, we run into a number of, I think, hurdles Uh, Or maybe kind of little objections in our heart. We say, whoa, 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 whoa. I can understand following Christ in the way that he approached and responded to the word of God. He had an Old Testament. And that gives me a pattern. But how do I follow Jesus Christ as a believer? Did Christ live the life of faith? Is Jesus a believer on earth? Or did he already, in a sense, have a, have a divine antenna that picked up all the messages from God and it was just like seeing them and, and so he didn't need faith? 
If he didn't need faith and didn't live by faith, then following Jesus Christ as a believer would be only by listening to his voice. Well, what does the Bible say about faith? But if he did live as a human by faith, then we have his voice. What does the Bible say about faith and the life of a Christian? We also have his example. And we can see his footprints in the path in front of us. I'm not talking about, let, let, me, let me give you some of the hurdles, okay? One hurdle is this. We tend to think of faith as limited to the act of salvation or of conversion, which just means to be turned. So I'm, I'm heading this direction, living for myself. God, God gets my attention. He, he strips away all that I think makes me a good person. And it's an unbearable sight. Have you ever been there? Has God taken away not just the bad things, but even the things that you thought made you worth anything? He's taken away your good things. He's just peeled them away until all you see is what he sees of you. And even a glance at that is unbearable. And it drives you to the cross. So we turn, repenting and believing, turning away from to turn to. Now, if that is all you think of faith, then the idea of following Christ as a believer would be very hard to imagine because Jesus Christ never exercised faith like that. He was never converted. He was never saved. In his perfect humanity, he never needed to be turned. So when we're talking about faith, we're talking about something much more than that moment when you first embraced Christ. We're talking about the life. The life of faith that follows. You open the gate of repentance and faith, throwing yourself on Christ. But then there's an entire life of walking, repenting, believing. So if you think of faith as just a, a moment in time, then following Christ as a believer won't make much sense. But what, is this, what does the Bible say? Well, we just read from Hebrews 10 where it says the just will live by faith. It's not just that we embrace life through faith. It is that alive in Christ, we live that life by faith. And we'll talk about that. John says it in his first letter many times from so many angles that we overcome the world by faith. That is, we follow Jesus Christ and we obey his voice in a very hostile environment on a battlefield. By continuing to believe. And how that affects us. So ongoing faith is essential to the Christian life. But how does that fit in with following Jesus Christ? Let me get you to ask three questions this morning. We'll try to answer them simply and quickly. First, what is faith? Second, what does a life of faith look like? How does it impact a life? And third, how does that show up in Jesus of Nazareth? So how do we follow Jesus as a believer? So first, what is faith? The biblical view of faith has been summed up in three elements, and I think this is really helpful and simple. There are Latin names for these. I don't know them, and you probably wouldn't benefit from them. But if you remember... Um, a month or so ago when Albert was here, he gave the Latin names. I thought, Albert, you're throwing Latin at us, man. But, you know, he's British, so we'll forgive him. But let me give you American. All right, here it is. Faith includes knowledge. Assent. Now, what does assent mean? It means it, it's dealing with the heart. It's not just that I know what God said about something, but there is something in my soul that inclines toward it, that values that desires what God just revealed. So the mind, knowledge. You don't want a superstition. If your idea of Christianity is to leave your brain at the door and walk into church and say, well, we just need to love Jesus and do whatever the preacher said, but you don't have any reasons for these things, that is not Christian faith. It's superstition. I know what God revealed. Knowledge. I 
value, I am inclined toward that. My soul bends toward it like a plant toward the sun. And third, the volition or the will. My choices are impacted. Some people have argued in past times, and I think it's coming up again. And I hope on one of the Wednesdays when Chuck is out on vacation in this summer, I hope to steal one of those Wednesdays and talk to you more about this. Does faith have to include all three? Does it include all of you? And we're going to talk about a man that said no. And he was a Reformed Baptist in Scotland in the early 1700s. And he said, we are adding too much to faith. It is just intellectual reception of God's testimony. So God said it. I received that intellectually. And I have believed it. Because God doesn't lie. So if a person who never lies says something to you and you accept it. He said that is all there is to faith. Anything else is a fruit of faith. So we'll talk about why that's not right. But why that was a valid. He attempted a good thing to protect the nature of faith. But let me just give you a quick answer. Why does faith have to include heart, heart, mind, and will? And the reason is, faith is a thing that occurs, of course, in the soul. Not, not here with the body. We can go through the motions and not be believers. Think of the Pharisees. Thousands of sacrifices of Jews. And God says to them, your mouth is really close to me. Your heart is far from me. In the Old Testament, God divides man up basically into the external and the internal. And we see that again in the New Testament. Body and soul, all right? Outward and heart. When the Old Testament talks about the heart, that's where faith is. But the heart for a Jew was not the word he used for emotions primarily. That was bowels, gut. Because the Jews and other ancient civilizations would say, well, when you feel something deeply, uh, you feel it in your gut. So they talked about their gut, their bowels, the bowels of compassion, an old way of saying it. I feel my emotions here, they say. So what is heart talking about? Heart in the Old Testament, like soul in the New Testament, was talking about the interior aspect of your life. So it includes your thoughts, your desires and or values and your choice choices, your volition, your will, what I think about, what I desire and what I choose. That goes on on the inside. Faith includes all of your soul's response to what God reveals in his word. I understand knowledge. My heart is inclined to it. It values it. It loves it. It desires it. And my will chooses it. We can talk about mind, heart, and will in the soul. The interior aspect of us. But you cannot really divide mind, heart, and will when it comes to your spiritual activity. When you respond to God, it is always a response that includes the soul, if it's a true response. And that means all of it. You can't cut the soul up into three categories and have one part acting and the other part, two parts are asleep. So it is impossible to imagine a person coming to the word of God and the spirit of God helping us to understand what we're reading. And we see these, you know, you think of the descriptions that AC gave this morning of Christ and you see those descriptions. And if you are spiritually alive, responsive, then the mind is engaged. I believe what AC read. The heart is engaged. I am inclined. I am embracing what AC read and the will. I want to choose to live in light of what AC read. We don't do it perfectly, but it does involve all of us. So, simple definition of faith. It is the response of the whole of your soul, mind, heart, and will, to what God has revealed. And that includes not just conversion, but the ongoing life. 
Second question. What does a life of faith look like? How does knowing, loving, or valuing, choosing based on the word of God, how does it show up in the way you live on the outside? Hebrews chapter 11, which I read, is surely one of the key chapters for seeing a description of faith in action. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Hebrews 11 and look at verse 1. What we have here is not a definition of faith. It is a description of faith in the way it impacts. It is not the fullest description. There's more that could be said. But it is the description, as I mentioned at the beginning, that fits what he is emphasizing. Enduring, even when all you have is the word of God and everything around you seems to be falling apart or, you know, the surface of life doesn't seem to agree with my Bible, what do I do next? And he describes how faith enables a believer to continue even during those times. So verse 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now let's take those two words. It is the assurance and it is the conviction. Faith is the assurance. The word here Assurance is a great translation. Other translations say uh, the substance, the confidence, all of those fit. One writer said it this way. Faith is what substantiates the promises of God to your heart. You say, well, I have words on a page. Wonderful. But God, I need to be assured that what's written on that page is really so true that I could risk everything based on what's written in an ancient book. An unbeliever does not have that. They look at the page. They admire Bible stories. Maybe they could even teach you what the verse talks about. But they have nothing of the substance in hand. They have no assuring from God this is real. And so they don't live on it. The other words, confidence or conviction, sorry, conviction. Another translation for that is evidence or a demonstration. To the believer, things that can't be seen are made as good as seen by this convincing work of God. Faith grabs hold of truths. And in grabbing hold of the truths, by faith, the believer is given, by God, a convincing proof and evidence of what he believes that this is true. Things that are not seen. All the spiritual realities that the Bible talks about, things that don't change, things that are, we could say, more real than the surface stuff of life. We have the apparent, the surface, and then we have the real. Sometimes we think of it that way. The whole invisible spiritual world, one writer says, not just things future, things that God will do, which we have to believe and live on. And not just things past, things which God said he has done for you. And you're going to have to believe by faith because you can't see the future and you weren't there in the past. And also things present, things which we can't see God at work in certain ways. But in the, in the word of God, he explains what he will do, what he will give, how we are to respond. And by faith, we have convincing proof. And substantiated promises. And the believer thinks differently, desires differently, and chooses differently. Augustine, the early church father in the 400s, said this. Faith is to believe what you do not yet see. Not yet. The reason for faith, he says... Is so that you may see right now what you believe. There is some evidence that we require and it is grabbed hold of by faith. Faith is, an ex, is a response always to a person. 
So when we think about salvation, so the entrance into Christianity, if you think of salvation as accepting and agreeing with and appreciating a plan, the plan of salvation, you don't understand Christianity. Christianity is understanding, accepting, valuing, choosing the person, Christ, according to the plan, the gospel. Faith is always a person-to-person response, not person-to-book primarily. Why do we understand, study, understand, value, and choose based on what God has written? Why do we believe the scriptures? Why do we live our lives as Christians based on the scriptures? Because of the person who is behind the book. If he weren't trustworthy, we would disregard it. But if you're going to say that I am living a life of faith, I am trusting him, I am following him, I am believing him, and I value what he says, then that is going to have to be through a book and not kind of our imagination or our vague ideas of what God must be like. Faith in faith is a terrible deception. I just believe things will turn out right, some people say. I think it's going to be okay in the end. Why do you think that? Well, I I have hope, and I believe in my hope, and that is a great way to be damned forever. Ignoring what God has revealed, living on your self-generated hope, what a way to deceive ourselves. So God has given us a book, but the reason the book is believed and responded to is because who gave it to us? That leads to the third question. If that's what faith is, the response of all of our soul to God's revealed facts in the scripture, and it alters our life because it gives us a a substantiating, a convincing and evidencing of these realities, how does that apply to following Jesus Christ? Well, we have to do some theology here because another one of those big hurdles that I find is that in, in considering Jesus of Nazareth, my mind and heart want to spend all of their time emphasizing his deity, his godness. He isn't just a man. He isn't just a prophet. He is the son of God, eternal son, father, son, and spirit. And so as God, he shares perfectly, eternally, all the fullness of the divine nature with the Father and the Spirit. And when he becomes man, that is not in any way reduced. Paul tells us from prison, all the fullness of God dwells in him, in a human body and soul. And we want to emphasize that because we love him and we don't want anyone in any way, to shrink the majesty of our Savior. But this is where the enemy comes in and gives us a little nudge. And we go a little further than we should, maybe further than the Scripture, and we de-emphasize that he is also truly human. In the incarnation, the divine nature is united to true human nature and a human body, human DNA in the womb of Mary. It is a miracle. The Bible tells us it's true. It does not explain how God does it. How can God in his fullness inhabit a human body and soul without it just exploding, you know? How can God fit? But we know that what he said is true by the life and the evidences that flowed from that. But it is the life of a true human. When God did that, He doesn't become less God to fit into a human. And when the humanity was was added to that deity, that humanity doesn't become a, a, a kind of a different humanity. He doesn't become a different kind of human. He is a true, sinless human. Like Adam. He is a true human, like you. In fact, the Bible goes so far to say it, that he is like you, In every way, in the fact that you're really human, so is he, except for this matter of sin. He was sinless. 
In eternity past, the son consents, agrees with, chooses the plan of redemption, the plan of our rescue that the father presents, if we could put it in that way. The son embraces the father's plans of redemption, how it will be accomplished. But that's the deity. When he is united to humanity, there is that second element now. There's two natures, divine and human. He's the only one that has two natures. And the humanity must, moment by moment by moment, from birth until the death on the cross, that humanity must continually consent to, delight in, and embrace all the will of the Father. And for that to be done in a world that is full of contradictions, what I mean is that as Christ lives his life and ministers, and even on the cross as he's dying, there would be so many things that appear to say to him in his humanity, this is a fool's errand. You're wasting your life. God, is he really paying attention? Is God doing what he said he would do? Look at the Old Testament. Look at your ministry. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the Jews. Look at the Old Testament. Look at your unbelieving family. Look at the Old Testament. Look at your straying disciples. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the wrath of God. How can you be so foolish as to think that this is the course that you're supposed to take? And the only way that he could hold that course is to take scripture, understand, value, and choose everything based on what his father said. We'll look at that in a moment. Let me give you one more hurdle before we look at a few examples in the life of Christ. And that is this issue of sin and righteousness. Is faith just for sinners? Well, everybody you know that's a believer is a sinner. So we tend to think, well, faith and sin, they kind of go hand in hand. I'm a sinner, therefore I have to be a believer. Repentance is limited to sinners, isn't it? Jesus never repented. He never needed to, to turn back. But faith. You remember when Adam was in the garden and he had not chosen against God and as a perfect, innocent, and pure human, the word of God comes to him, Adam, I give you everything, but here is a restriction. And then the enemy comes to Eve and then through Eve to Adam and says, has God said you can't have anything around here? And of course, believing the lies of the enemy, they rebel against God's command and humanity with our foreparents falls into a state of rebellion and alienation and shame and every form of sorrow comes now through that. Adam should have believed God. He owed God faith. All I have is the word of God. And it contradicts what the enemy is offering me and saying to me. So I will hold my thoughts and desires and choices accountable to what God says because he's true. I don't know about this guy over here that's telling me the opposite. If Adam would have done that, he would have been righteous. Adam failed and sin entered humanity because he did not believe. And so his choices were based in lies. But Adam had to believe before he was a sinner. After he's a sinner, he has to believe as well. Jesus of Nazareth is not a sinner, but as a true human, he must exercise faith. Why? Because there are so many things about the Christian life that you cannot yet see or handle. Things that God says he will yet do. Promises he makes. Things he said he has done. And you can't get your eyes on them yet. So you're going to have to believe the one person who does know perfectly about all of it. And if you will accept what he says and live by what he says, that's the life of faith. That's why a Christian continues to live believing. 
Have you ever thought of Christ living by trusting what his father says because he could not see everything that the father saw, just like you can't see? So much that was promised to the son came after his life on earth. Just like so much that is promised to the Christian, to the, to the Christian in scripture will come after. It's the same path. When did it start? Well, not at conversion. That's when, if you're a Christian, that's when yours started. You really began to believe Christ when you turned in repentance and faith. But when did the Messiah's faith begin? As a man, as a human, when did he begin to believe? I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of those psalms where we read about the Messiah on the cross. The New Testament quotes it. We know it's referring to Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 9. He's talking about the fact that God has been faithful to sinners who trust Him. But here He is on the cross. Look at verse 9. Yet you, He's talking to the Father. Yet you, Father... Are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. When did faith begin in the Messiah? In the man Jesus of Nazareth? From birth. Now of course that means according to the level of human maturity. So at birth, he didn't open a scroll and read the Old Testament. He had to be taught how to read. But according to the level of his human ability to know and desire and choose, he always knew, desired, and chose based on believing God. So as a child, when Mary or Joseph or the local synagogue teachers described God to him from Scripture... As a child, he would have embraced those truths wholeheartedly, sinlessly, perfectly at the level of a child. And when he was 19 years old or when he's 30 years old, he would have embraced them perfectly again, but at the level of a 19 or a 30 year old. We know that Christ grew intellectually. We know that he matured physically. He wasn't born knowing all of these things effortlessly he had to be taught, he had to learn as a true human. And as he was taught and learned at each step of the way, he wholeheartedly, mind, desires, and will, constantly responded to what the Father revealed of himself in his Old Testament. He believed and he lived on that. You might think that it was effortless for Christ, and I think that Maybe we should look at a few things that show that that's not true. He was sinless, but a sinless man believing or trusting God through a book. In a world that is so against God, that man will have to struggle and fight to believe. It won't be effortless, even though it was perfect and sinless. When Christ lived based on what the Old Testament said about the Father, about sin, about righteousness, about the law, about the heart, about Him as Messiah. And we know that by age 12, He understands He is the God-man. He is the Son of God who must be about the Father's things. It's not explained to us when exactly and how fully he understood that at each step of the way. But by age 12, clearly he understands that. When he is baptized, he is being baptized as the Messiah who will save his people. When he goes into the wilderness to be tempted, it is fully knowing that the word of God and then the voice of God at baptism said, you are the son of God. But was it effortless to live on those facts? Well, let's think of a few examples. In the garden, uh, sorry, in the, not garden of Gethsemane, but in the wilderness, the temptation. Christ begins his ministry by being baptized visibly 
identifying himself with sinful humanity to save. He is taken immediately by the Spirit into wilderness. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he doesn't eat and drink, and he is assaulted by the enemy with his lies. And he answers the enemy with Scripture. But you do understand that the Bible is not magic, and you don't just throw a verse up and everything is okay. I mean, there is faith. He had to know and value and choose based on what Scripture said. Think of the temptation in the wilderness. The heart of it was this. If you are the Son of God, then do this. Had he not already, through the study of the Old Testament, understood he was the Son of God, the Messiah? Had he not just been told at the baptism, the voice from heaven, it happens at the beginning of his ministry and toward the very end. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So there's the Word of God. And the enemy says, if you're really the Son of God, well, do this and prove it. Do you think the enemy would have used that approach if it was effortless? There is the lie of the enemy. You're, you've misunderstood. You're not what you think you are. Uh, if you are, then prove it by doing this or this or this. Act independently of your father. And of course, Christ refuses. But how does he endure the temptations? Not just by memorizing and quoting verses, but by understanding the verses and living on the verses and loving what God says and trusting what God says and choosing that every aspect of life would be fashioned by what God says. So when the enemy come and say, comes and says, if you are the son of God, do this, he is prepared to refuse that. Think of the ministry of Christ. How often do we read in the Gospels that Jesus is healing great crowds and then as he's preaching, they're so impressed. John chapter 6 we, they want to make him king. They want to crown him. They want to kidnap Christ, put a crown on him and say, he's the king of the Jews. He's so, he has these miraculous powers. He'll get rid of the Romans. And Christ will not let them do that. And as he goes on with his sermon, he gets to the part that talks about the cost of being rescued by him. And they all leave. Thousands, thousands, tens of thousands. Not one remains except the 12 disciples and even one of them is a fake. How many times does Christ face scenes like that where people said, wow, you're wonderful. You're a great teacher. You're a prophet sent from God. You have the power of miracles. It's amazing. And then when he said, follow me, they said, no thanks. And they walked away. Do you not think that the enemy is there each step of the way to say to the Lord Jesus, as a man, you sure you're doing this right? They're all leaving. You just got the 12. You just lost tens of thousands. Maybe you should have said it differently. Maybe you should have waited before you gave the punchline. You know, you should have held off a little more. They needed to understand better. John chapter 2, he does, he cleanses the temple and everybody in the temple is impressed. What a brave prophet, Elijah-like, John the Baptist-like. And Christ will not entrust himself to them. Can you not imagine the enemy saying to them, to, to our Lord, why didn't you tell them who you were? You would have an enormous following by now. Think of how much good you could have done to so many people. But he doesn't. How does he hold the course of obedience when every time he ministers, connected with that, there are so many things that would seem to cry out that it's not working or the father's not doing what he promised. Think of, I mentioned a few, think of just these examples. The Jews prepared by centuries of scripture Sermons, explanations, prophecies, songs and prayers, ceremonies and laws. So that, that when they saw Jesus of Nazareth, they should have recognized the Son of God. 
Some did, didn't they? Simeon and Anna saw an infant and they knew he is the God-man, the Messiah. He's here. But in the unbelief of their wicked, self-righteous lives, twisting the Old Testament and misapplying it, when Christ comes and teaches and heals and explains who he is and what he's come to do, the mass of Judaism turns its back on him. And John has to write decades later, he came to his own, the Jews, and his own did not receive him. Do you not think that the enemy would have come and said to him, how do you think the world, the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, Christ, when even your own people despise you? Think of his family. 30 years he lives at home, obedient to his earthly parents. 30 years he lives in some fashion in contact with siblings. And when he begins his public ministry, what do we find? Not one of his brothers or sisters believes his claims. And they have seen 30 years of sinless humanity. What did you, you think of you know, what Christ said to the disciples when they said, show us the Father. He said, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is what Paul says. He is the, he is the visible image of the invisible God or what Hebrew says he is the outshining of the glory of God because he is the exact representation of his moral nature I saw God in humanity John says we beheld him full of grace and truth glory as of the only begotten 30 years, his human family has contact with the sinless God in a human body and not one of his siblings believes. Apparently, Joseph has already passed away by the time the New Testament speaks of his ministry. Mary believes, but none of the siblings do. Can you not imagine that the enemy would have whispered to him as the, as the time to start ministry came close? Why do you think this is going to work? Why do you think you're the son of God? Why do you think that the father will keep his word? You have lived 30 years with these brothers and sisters and not one, not just, not all, not one has believed you. How does he not shift tactics and choose his own way? Because he believes. Well, we can think of the disciples as they continue to Listen to him. He teaches them. Then he gives them the example in his own life. And then he turns and speaks to the crowds. And within, within a few verses on the page, the disciples are going in the opposite direction in their arrogance and in their unbelief. They're completely unraveling everything he's teaching. And he has to come back and rebuke them and say it all over again. Can you not imagine the enemy's lies to the God-man? You're going to leave this kingdom task to these guys? They can't even hold it together when you're still here. If you leave them, do you think the nations will really hear the gospel? On the cross, when even the Father has turned his face from him, and the wrath of God is poured out on him, and the Son who is innocent becomes the bearer of the shame and the guilt of every sin of every person who will trust him. Do you not think the enemy came and said, was this the right choice? You've thrown your life away for nothing. The father is not pleased. Look at how he treats you. You will be destroyed. And when the shepherd is destroyed, I will take care of the sheep. I will destroy them too. How does he do this? Let me give you a couple of passages. Isaiah 49. Christ, it's speaking of the coming of Christ. We've studied this many times. And Jesus is saying how the Father prepared him to do all the work of the Messiah in that prophetic passage. And then in Isaiah 49.3, we read a contradiction. What I'm seeing and what I'm reading. Verse 3. He, the Father, said to me, the Son, You are my servant. In whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. 
You see the contradiction? The father said, he said he would send me to conquer, to save, not just Jews, but from all around the world. But I, what I'm seeing is complete failure. Then he goes on and says this, yet, surely, the justice due to me is with the Lord, with my God, and my reward is with my God. There's the struggle, what I'm reading and what I'm seeing seem to contradict. It's not effortless. And there is the perfect obedience. Yet, surely, the Father won't lie to me. I trust Him with the outcome. And what follows is many wonderful promises. And we see that this came true. If you're a believer in Mississippi, you are one of the expressions of God's faithfulness to the Son. In Isaiah 50, the next chapter, he says, The Lord opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. We talked about that last week. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheek to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. When the Father gave me what to do, I obeyed Him. I trusted Him and I obeyed Him. Even when it was the cross, He says. How? How does He hold on? Read Psalm 22 where it shows the agony of the heart of the God-man. And He's pleading and He's saying to God the Father... You are so faithful to those that hope in you, even though they are sinful. Over and over they disregard you, but when they trust you and come to you, you're faithful. But I, the sinless one, I'm not even treated as a man. He says, I'm a worm, and I'm surrounded by wolves and dogs, and I, am, I feel abandoned. And if you keep reading the psalm, there's a transition. Verses 7 to verse 12. But I will tell your name in the assembly of the righteous. That is, I will, after death, be raised. And I will speak of my Father in the great assembly of every believer at the end of time. Ruling over everything. How does he endure the struggle and the lies of the enemy at that point... And Isaiah 50 gives us the answer. 4, verse 7. The Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Why does Christ not buckle under the lies of an enemy when it's the Father who is crushing him and it is because he believes and by faith he obeys he does not despair because the scripture explains what's happening and he does not live on what human eyes can see on the cross when God the father not just the enemy Not just the hateful Jews, not the hateful Romans, but when God, His Father, crushes Him as the sin offering, who does He commit His soul to? To the Father. Can you imagine the scene in the mind and heart of Christ? It is the Father who is bringing a weight of infinite wrath. The Son, who is the law keeper, has become the most obnoxious thing in the sight of the law. And all the wrath of God due to every person who will follow Christ is at that moment crushing Him. And while that is flowing from the Father to the Son, the Son at the end says what? It's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He quotes from Psalm 31. I trust me to you. While you destroy me. For the sin of my people. Do you think. It didn't require effort. To believe what the scripture said in Psalm 31. 
so that even at that darkest moment, the humanity of Jesus holds to the course of obedience? Do not let the beauty of his infinite godness and the majesty and the power of that hide the fact that he was truly human as well. And as a true human, he had to live by faith. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said this, Jesus was put to faith, sorry, Jesus was put to live on earth by faith like we are. For in this example of Christ, we have the highest instance of believing that ever was. We could say it simply this way. Follower of Christ. If you want to know how to live by faith, you can be discipled by the greatest believer ever. And what if you are not a believer? You keep delaying. You keep pushing it back. You keep saying to God, not here, okay? Not now. Go to him with a broken heart. What excuse will you offer Jesus of Nazareth on the throne of heaven and earth when you see him and you explain to him it was too hard for you to believe? When you realize he believed as a man? What religious phrase will you use that will somehow convince the great believer that faith was too hard for you and so you should be let off. You know who is the author and finisher of faith. It's the believer, Christ. So break your heart over your unbelief, over your willful calling him a liar, at least for the moment, just long enough to get out of the church building. Take that to him and plead for the mercy that you need and say to him, help me. I want to trust you, to understand, to love, and to choose based on what you say. Christian faith, the life of faith, is not you and the 1689 Confession or the Westminster or what else. It is not you and what your preacher says. It is not you and even just words on a page. It is you alive in Christ, waking up tomorrow morning, opening the book, turning your face toward your God, and by his constant help, Knowing, loving, choosing on faith, believing what he says, and it changes everything. Paul writes at the end of Romans, Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.